This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. It's been an exciting time for my friend Ayad Akhtar. He's just published Homeland Elegies, a novel that Juno Diaz calls Book of the Year, and Salman Rushdie characterizes as passionate, disturbing, unputdownable. And earlier this month, he accepted the presidency of Penn, succeeding Jennifer Egan. Many of you know Ayad's theater work. He won the Pulitzer for Disgraced and has written in addition Junk, The Who and the What, and The Invisible Hand. Needless to say, in addition to the Pulitzer, awards have flowed from all quarters and translations abound. His first novel, American Dervish, has been translated into 20 languages and was designated the best book of the year by Kirkus. He writes screenplays as well, and he's an actor too. What don't you do, Ayad? <laughs> I don't do this, uh, the tech stuff all that good. <laughs> <laughs> Neither do I. Neither do I. In, in the era of COVID, you know, it's, uh, it's a lot. I'm, I'm a little, find myself a little challenged. <laughs> How, how's it happened? How's, how's it going in the era of COVID? How you know, you? it's going okay. I mean, you know, uh, Anik and I are upstate. We have, a, we have a place that we had gotten a year and a half ago, and it's nice to be able to have country air and, and landscapes and all of that. But, you know, there's so much grief in the sense of how much we're losing and how much we've lost it here in New York City. You know, I'm in the city for, for a week and it's just it's not the same place. You know, it really isn't. And you just worry about, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to play the New York Post game of New York having been, you know, being dead, declaring it dead or anything. But it does feel different. And I and one wonders what it's going to take for it to sort of recover, you know. Well, you know, our, our industry is sort of, you know, the publishing industry is kind of a microcosm. And there's nobody I know who's really, unless they had their main, unless they were living in New York City, there's nobody I know who's still there. You know, none of the publishing houses have come back to work. So I can only imagine that in Manhattan. Midtown's like a ghost town. Yeah, yeah. My daughter lives on the Upper West Side and she tells me that. She, and, you know, but, you know, we're seeing that in Miami as well. You know, we have a store right in downtown Carl Gables, which is not far from the University of Miami, but people aren't going to work. They're working from home uh, or they don't have work, which is the other big sadness that's happening. Um, but, you know, I have to say that one of the things that I miss most during this period uh, is the time, the time over the last number of years where you and I would, you know, run into each other and grab a drink and talk a little bit. And that's the Sun Valley Writers Conference. It's, yeah. it's where I first met you. It's where I first started reading your work. Um, I love Sun Valley. Yeah, it's such a joyous kind of celebration of, you know, of books and ideas. And I have to say, the, the interview that you did with John Burnham Schwartz was one of my favorite. And it kind of brought me back to it, you know, because yeah. that kind of deep dive into a book that... You know, it's, you know, it's sort of like, 
you know, refreshes the soul. And yeah. John is such a careful, close reader. Yeah. And um, I, anybody, yeah, it's, it's such a wonderful reading. Yeah, he really presented yeah. me with so many interesting perspectives on it. Yeah, and anyone out there listening to this podcast, you can hear uh, Ayad on Beyond the Page, which is the Sun Valley Writers podcast as well. And um, on LitHub, I think LitHub. Um, LitHub also, yeah, like this one, LitHub also oh, cool. presents that too. So, you know, it's your book came out at a really interesting time. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. But the, the most recent uh, big announcement, which was so interesting, is that you're now the president of Penn. I will, I will be in, in December. You will be. And you're taking over for Jennifer Egan, right? Yeah. Who I think has done a great job in this. She's been amazing. Tough time. Tell me, you know, what has been in your involvement with Penn? What do you see as the importance of Penn? And uh, are there things that you hope to kind of focus on uh, come December? So I've been on the board five years. And the last year and a half, I've worked very closely with Jenny. I've uh, been kind of the op- acting vice chair of the board, if you will, just sort of everything you know, been helping her really. And because uh, there's so much to do. Um, so I've got, I've, I've been able to see firsthand what's involved. And, you know, we've been talking about transition. And, you know, about a year ago, they approached me about my interest. And I said, yeah, you know, I'm busy, but, but it's a, it's a worthy cause. And it's something that I, I, I understand a lot better now having worked so closely with Jenny for so long. Um, you know, I think that there's a few things that I'm focused on that I'm excited about. The organization does so much. I mean, literally, you know, advocacy for literature and on behalf of, of writers and journalists and free speech in general and you know, the support of, of emerging writers, uh, widening the sort of gates of access to the publishing uh, community, all of that sort of stuff. And the things that sort of really excite me the most really are the drive to have the organization have an increasingly national presence that for, for writers across the great heartland of America to also have involvement with Penn, not just that you're on the coast or that you're in New York City. Um, and then, you know, to continue to make the case, which I think is sometimes, it feels like it's getting harder and harder, that reading really matters, that deep reading matters, that, that literature is committed to values that, that make our public discourse uh, more valuable whether it's the ability to brook contradiction or the ability to have emotionally valent sort of responses to things. Um, you know, literature is that par excellence. And I just feel more and more the, the importance of literature, both in the educational process, you know, the collapse of, of colleges and liberal arts and the teaching of literature to me is a real crisis for us, not just as writers, but as a society. And I, and I think making the case that literature really does matter, not as a well-intentioned, bleeding heart liberal kind of preoccupation for folks who have enough time for it, but that it really matters, that it matters to understand how to situate yourself in your life with others and in the world. Well, and you know, I think, I don't remember when it was, but I think the NEA did a study a number of years ago, which showed that anyone who read, let's say even one novel a year, uh, tended to be involved and have a civic engagement that was far superior to anybody else. That's right. uh, the whole notion of civic engagement, as we all know right now, what we're going, you know, seeing what we're going through is so important. And reading, I think, is at the center of that. Right, and, 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 and deep reading, you know, and, and the ability to sustain concentration. I think that what's happened with the devices and social media and all that is that we've lost, we are losing the ability to have those, those, those capacities. 
And you know, and I often talk about the Neil Postman book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, if you know it. I don't, I don't. Uh, the subtitle is Serious Discourse in the Age of Showbiz. And, <laughs> and he, wrote, he wrote it with the advent of CNN. It wasn't <laughs> even today. I mean, he wrote it back in the 80s. It's, and it really is very prescient because you're absolutely right. You know, it, you know the trivialization of news, the trivialization of so many other things, which is why spending time with Homeland Elegies felt so rich and so rewarding. And when, when you're in, when, you know, when you're, you know, everybody can relate to this, that when you're, when you're engrossed and you're immersed in something that is so provocative and so rich, we're all the better for it in so many different ways. It's, it's kind of like a workout in an interesting <laughs> way. Kind of an intellectual workout. I'm so glad and, you felt that way. <laughs> oh, boy, you did it. And you know what was interesting to me as well? And I'd like you to talk a little bit about it. I know that you started this a while ago. And it's kind of the power of the book is that it speaks to us so much today, right today. You know, it's that the kinds of things that you were dealing with and struggling with and writing about are those things that have, because of the pandemic and because of what happened with Black Lives Matter and the idea of race and what we've been discussing, it's all bubbled up to the surface where your book touches now on so many of those things in such a way. What I wanted to do, I don't even know if you saw this, this review came to me today or yesterday. What, which one? The one in The Guardian. Did you read that one oh, yet? Uh, I think my publicist sent it to me, but I haven't seen it. All right, so I'm going to read you, if you, if you, you know, okay. don't mind. I want to read you a bit of this. It's really an astonishing review. Uh, in Ann Akhtar's 2013 Pulitzer Prize-winning play, Disgraced, his principal character, Amir, a Pakistani-American lawyer, admits feeling a blush of pride at 9-11. Akhtar was exploring the crisis of identity felt by many Muslim Americans in the wake of the terror attacks. The line shocked some at the time and continues to haunt him today. Akhtar returns to the theme in this courageous and timely novel, deftly interweaving fact and fiction, memoir and history. The narrator, who shares Akhtar's name and profession and is no longer a practicing or believing Muslim, finds himself, quote, still entirely shaped by the Islam that had socially defined me since 9-11, interrogating a, quote, culture that didn't understand us, that didn't want us. For this reason, he says, I only ever voice my thoughts indirectly through that particular prevarication called art. Presumably, it's why Akhtar decided to examine his own life through the lens of fiction. It's hard to convey, this is what I like the best, and you will too, it's hard to convey the breadth and brilliance of this work. <laughs> Exploiting his skills as playwright and essayist as well as novelist, Akhtar depicts an immigrant's family's experience of the American dream through a son's relationship with his father and dissects the erosion of truth decency and hope in a nation shaped by debt and money. I think that says, yeah, it says a lot. 
captured a lot, uh, really a lot of it. And it, it kind of leads me to the question of um, talk, talk about, talk about the novel, talk about the, you know, what caused you to write it mm -hmm. and also the form of it, because it's such a unique and interesting form that you chose. Right. So, well, thanks. I don't think anybody, I don't think anybody's ever read a review out to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I believe me, I wouldn't have read it other than. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but, but I'm delighted. Thank you, Mitch. Um, the, uh, you know, my, my mom passed away um, and my, my dad was showing signs of decline. He was sort of struggling with alcoholism and, you know, Trump was elected and, and I'd been seeing a picture for some time of America, you know, a, a nation divided divided and riven by, by divides between rural and urban and, and the heartland and the coasts, economic divides and, and racial divides. And, and the picture to me was increasingly clear. And I was, I just felt a kind of emotional urgency. And I think it was, a, it had something to do with the grief around my parents of wanting to speak to what had happened to America. And you know, the odd thing was that they'd been here almost exactly 50 years and, and watching their trajectory over that 50 years and what had happened to them and their, rel their sort of, you know, their cousins and their brothers and sisters that came here and what happened to all of those kids like myself and telling that story seemed to shed light not only on what America had been to them, but also what it became, not just for them, but for all of us. And that was, I wanted to find a way to sort of capture the breadth and scope of that. But I also recognized the importance of the vivid present for a reader who has lost the ability to stay with something. And so I had to find a way to marry this, the immediacy of the Instagram scroll and being in the now, just one picture after the next and one sensational thrill after the next had to, to marry that to a, a very wide, a big tapestry of, of the country. So that was the form that I, the form that I found was a kind of peripatetic, almost Tristram Shandy meets, you know, Alexi de Tocqueville, if you will, right? <laughs> I've been joking, I joked to some of my friends that it was an attempt at, you know, Proust meeting Jerry Springer, right? <laughs> so, yeah. Success, success. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, and so, yeah, so, it, it, but, but the funny thing, Mitch, about the book was that the way it sort of just poured out of me, I mean, it was, there was an, there was an urgency to it. And I, I think for the first time in my life as a writer, I really had the craft to ride the wave, that I wasn't struggling with the wave. The wave was coming and I, and I had the craft to ride it. And um, yeah, I think, you know, that's, that's, which also then allowed me to sort of push further, if you will. And you do it, you do it so well. And I think the structure, you, you created this structure in the novel as a piece of music, basically, right? Yeah, exactly. You, know, exactly. you have an overture, which, which is brilliant. And then, Eight, each. Movements, eight, eight movements, each of sort of grabbed right. a little bit longer than the, than the previous. And then you have a coda at the end as well. And each of the movements deals with an aspect of America because it really, you know, it, what you made me start thinking about was the fact that we are all other mostly in this country and that we all have this kind of similar sort of story and it usually is an immigrant story of some sort. Uh, and it has to do with identity. Uh, it has to, you know, we all, we're all dealing with that. There's some myth 
there's some overriding myth about America that, <laughs> you know, that there's only, you know, that there are people who, you know, there are a group of people, obviously, that, you know, that... Even, even they came native over. Native people. They came over to... Well, sure, sure. Right. But, but, you know, there were people who were brought here without wanting to have been brought here. But, but there's this overriding myth that, you know, that not most of us came within the last two generations, which is probably the truth in here. Huh. Yeah. Uh, so we all have these complicated pasts and you do. And so you hit on every aspect you hit on the politics of it. You bring in Donald Trump, right? How did that, how did that come to be? You know, was I, that, it was, it was, it was a result of watching what was happening to the country. I mean, you know, our lust for unreality and our, our, our passion to be duped and, and our, you know, you said earlier, you quoted the, this, you know, the book Serious Discourse in the Age of Showbiz, right? That's what the title is. Amusing, amusing Ourselves to Death, right. Yeah, Amusing Ourselves to Death, right. You know, it's like entertainment has become a substitute for politics, a substitute for thought, a substitute for education. You know, all of our institutions have become riven by this crisis of knowledge that nobody even seems to take that seriously. Even those who purport to take it seriously, we are ourselves also beholden to the gamification of our reality. And so they're turning, the system is, is turning us into lab rodents who just keep hitting that little lever and that lever is this device. Yeah, yeah. And that what is happening to the country in the process. And to me, Donald Trump was the embodiment, the essence of all of this. Somebody who had played authority for 14 seasons on The Apprentice and somehow that was enough of a preparation for the American psyche to accept the possibility of an absolute idiot. And I don't mean that with any malice. That's just a statement of fact. An idiot with no interest, no interest in his daily briefings, no interest in the nation, no interest in anything beyond watching himself on television. You know, we all watch Being There, Jersey Kosinski's Being There, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. we all said, no, that, nothing like that could ever happen, right? Or Ian Esco's The Leader, I thought about, I think about that all the time as well. And, and you know, as you say, we are all, we're, we are all beholden to that. I, I saw a journalist write the other day, and they were, they were, it was basically a critique, a self-critique, and she said, we don't know how to deal with a guy like this. Right. We don't know how to deal with a guy who just lies all the time. And I saw it last night on the uh, town hall town meeting. Hall. The town hall. Stephanopoulos had. He just couldn't, there was no way for him to, to get around it. You know, I mean, he really, we did see it with the Politico interview where he was yeah, right. you know, able to hold his feet to the fire. But it's really slippery when you have somebody who just has no shame and who will just lie and lie and lie. And you bring and it- the process And has an entertainment and, and, is, and is a great show. Yeah, That's completely exactly. a great it's show. It's a great show. All it's, the time. it's wearing a little bit now. But in an odd way, the, the fact that it's wearing and we're starting to wake up to it wearing is also a new chapter of the show. Yeah, you're, God, you, that's exact, so smart. That's really true. And what you were able to do is it was not, I mean, you were able, because the book is about your dad and the experience, not about your dad, but about the fictional dad that sure, you have. Yeah. And, and your fictional father has a relationship with Donald Trump, which might or might not be reality. I'm not going to play that game with you. But, but it's really, really interesting. Your father in real life was a cardiologist, right? 
And the world specialist of arrhythmias, you know, irregular repeats. Right. And in the in the book, in the novel, that's what brings him in Donald Trump's world, right? Yeah. And it's done so naturally. And in the second part of it, you have this this thing that lead this the Scranton memoirs, which brings up the whole notion of identity, but then also it leads us into this whole materialistic you know, discussion that you did or didn't, <laughs> you know, you introduced this fascinating character who, you know, I loved the, you know, uh, Riaz, I think. Riaz, it yeah, yeah. And I love the way he screws around with these municipalities who, you know, who made it very hard for mosques to be in there, yeah. in there. So he's heroic, but also it leads you into this world that's not very heroic, right? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I knew that the book would have to chart the process of making it. The, 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 you know, a, a writer who achieves the American dream. Right. And, and that, the achievement of that dream had to be both incredibly seductive, it had to confer authority, and it also had to be ultimately morally hollow. And all of those things had to coexist. So... You know, and yeah, he gets to meet Riaz and Riaz is the vehicle of a huge transformation in his life and, and is also a kind of window onto what has happened, how debt and finance have really reshaped the world. Yeah, and we could talk a little bit about that because that, that, that flows through most of your work, a lot yeah. of your work. And yeah. it's something that appeals to me greatly because I've been, I've been sort of late to the game and really sort of looking at that and understanding it. And part of it is that, You've been doing it for a long, long time, but I look at some people who are in this administration and I go, why? <laughs> you know, why are they doing what they're doing? And I'm trying to, I try to get down to the bottom of why they're doing it. You look at a guy like Bill Barr yeah. and you ask yourself, what is it? And at the root of it is this kind of neoliberalism dealing with economics. It's a very scary, frightening, you know, view. It's almost an authoritarian view of, how the oligarchs should rise again. Here yeah, that's right. That freedom, that freedom, freedom is something that is really the, the purview of those who, who make the world. Yeah, the kind of Milton, the Milton Friedman notion of totally. there's no responsibility of the corporation and, except to make money and kind of social Darwinism as well. But, but in that chapter too, what I found interesting is, and I don't know why, I mean, I related to it, even though I don't have your direct experience, but, but, and I'll tell you why in a minute, but you grew up in Milwaukee, right? So you grew up, you were, talk a little bit about the fact that your parents, your, both of your doctor, your parents were doctors and yeah. they grew up or they were born in Pakistan, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Talk and a little they, bit. And then you found yeah, they, they you, school, medical school in Lahore and in, in you know what was the sort of equivalent of the best medical school there, and and then they came to a uni- United States on a program that had top uh, scientists, uh, young scientists and young doctors, you know, top of their class, flew them to the United States, gave them plane tickets, apartments, visas, and jobs. They both came over on that program, ended up in New York City, uh, Staten Island for a few years where I was born, and then my dad was given sort of carte blanche to start a laboratory at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, as, a, as a sort of one of the first people in the country to study irregular heartbeats. And this is how my dad ended up becoming a sort of world specialist of irregular heartbeats and was a doctor to many famous people. And so 
um, you know, and they moved out to Wisconsin. And that's where basically where I grew up was in Wisconsin. And what interested me, and, and the, the Ayad in the novel comes to a realization of being another or having that feelings of being another after an experience. Uh, in Scranton, in, yeah. In Scranton. And what, what interests me about that, I don't remember the age of your character in the book at the time, but you were in your late 20s probably. Uh, yeah, your right? early 30s. It's kind of very fluid. I was trying to yeah. stay off of being too precise about those but, things. But what made it very interesting is that you clearly felt, you, feel it, you clearly felt at home in Milwaukee, right? I mean, yeah. you, you knew you came from two worlds, sure. but you, you didn't experience a kind of, you didn't, really, you didn't really experience what so many other immigrants might exper have experienced in, in their lives. Am I right about that? You know, totally. In, Wisconsin, in, the, in, in the Wisconsin pre-9-11, I would say maybe even pre-Scott Walker. Right. It, it was a different, different place. And, and, and the sense of belonging, you know, people very welcoming. It's sort of, you know, your typical... Garrison Keeler, you know, the, the right. <laughs> Midwestern good-natured people. I mean, well, Wisconsin, Wisconsin has a real history of being, you know, it was one of the most liberal, you know, places in the country, you know, if I remember correctly, right? Oh, totally, mean, yeah. It's a birthplace of the, of, of the labor movement. And, you know, we in Milwaukee, there was a socialist regime in, in the mayor's office for 60 years, you know, right, the right. only actual socialist mayor in, in America. Right. Um, right. But, you know, but also, you know, Joe McCarthy's from Wisconsin. Exactly. So it has right. both of those contraries. And so, you know, the other side started rearing its, its head uh, in, uh, you know, under really, you know, post-Bush years. I mean. Well, and then the defining moment was 9-11. Yeah, of course. Right? And, then, and then once 9-11 happened, I think it just changed everything. And so I, I grew up pre-9-11 in a very sort of welcoming community. And then this narrator is having this experience in a very, very forlorn part of Pennsylvania where there's a lot of uh, economic disadvantage and a lot of long-standing sort of, you know, it's, now it's been generations of abandoned communities and a real kind of nastiness towards outsiders. And he has this experience which kind of coalesces a lot of threads he's been dealing with since 9-11. And, and it kind of, you know, and he has, I won't spoil it for the reader, but, but there's a pivotal realization that leads, that drives a lot of the rest with, of the with, with a cop and with a broken down car. And, but I was so interested in that. And so how dislocating 9-11 had to have been for you. Yeah. I mean, like overnight, it flipped, overnight. I imagine. That's right. I think it, overnight it changed lives for folks who were, you know, identifiably from the, from the South Asian or Middle Eastern area. Um, you know, my mom used to say, uh, before 9-11, they didn't know where we were from and they didn't really care. And after 9-11, they figured we could only be from someplace bad. <laughs> right. Well, your mother in the book, and I imagine she must have been like that as yeah. well. Your mother had a very skeptical view of this country, yeah, she did. you know, the whole time. Your father, less so, right? Yeah, he was, uh, he was, he embraced uh, what he felt was a certain freedom to spread his wings, remake himself, and, uh, and succeed. You know? and, and a lot of that was about money, about economics and money, but, you know. Yeah, and your mother had a much more uh, romantic, not romantic, but she, she was very nostalgic about, about Pakistan. And, and talk about 
you would go you would go back with your family to visit every relatives. Year. you know when i was a kid we'd go back every year and then when i was a little bit older you know during sort of like middle school and high school it would be every other year um and but the last time i was back was 2008 so it was like a, you know about six or seven years after after 9-11 and it was around the time close to the time when they just before bin laden, bin laden. Just before, yeah just before bin laden and you have a very chilling scene in the book where you're in the town in aftabad yeah where, where yeah. Bin Laden was being kept at the time actually i'm in a house that's i don't know maybe 500 yards from that compound it's wild yeah. and it's a very touching it's very touching scene with your dad yeah. who then decides to go and help somebody there who's sick and yeah. you know it's um you know it it I just can't do more than congratulate you on just such a remarkable achievement in this book. You've made it interesting, a very, very unique uh, structure, you know, the blending of fact and fiction, the blending of who you are as a person versus the character. And I can tell you as a reader, and who knows you somewhat, I mean, we know each other pretty, pretty well. You know, I don't need to know it all. You know, I mean, it's it's not like I need to know, you know, <laughs> yeah. is this true? Is that not true? Because that's, that's it, nice. Dave Davies at Fresh Air wasn't, wasn't he, he wanted to know. <laughs> oh, really? <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not. No, to me, it didn't matter really because it is you in a sense. Yeah. Because who really knows what, you know, it's the essence of who you are. You wrote it. It is what it is through the lens of your of your sensibility. So how would you sum up? By calling it a novel, what I'm asking the reader to do is I'm asking the reader to hold it to a different standard of truth. I'm asking them to hold it to a standard of poetic truth. Does it ring true? Not just anecdotally, is it merely actually, you know, accurate in some... No, it's, is it, is it accurate to us, to your experience of this narrator? Is this narrator's experience emblematic for you of something? Yeah, and the, and the other thing too, and you, I've heard you talk about this, and I'd love you to talk a little bit more about it, is this is a quintessentially American novel. It's not, you know, it, it's quintessentially about all of us. We all have some, it's about, it's about America. It's, it's about how you've managed to sort of navigate your America, your America, but it's, it's as American as any Philip Roth or anybody else writing about mm-hmm. the state of affairs where we are. Right. And it, you know, I, I, I just, you know, one of the really interesting things about all the different books that are coming out is, you know, as a bookseller, we don't want to pigeonhole any of these things because they really are, it's really all about who all of, all of all, us are. About all of us. It's yeah. who we are. Yeah, yeah. Who we've come to be and where we are, and your take on America dovetails so much with my own. What you say about capitalism, for instance, which is so interesting. It's easy easy to criticize capitalism, and even easier to enjoy its benefits. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I love that. That's that's the problem. (laughs) Exactly the problem. Completely the problem. But in any case, this is a book that. I, I think will speak for years to come. Uh, and particularly coming out now during this period of lockdown pandemic, social upheaval, you know, we have a big election coming up. I mean, I think people will be reading this to see what the sort of sensibility was 
of the time. And I congratulate you. And I would love it if you could read a little bit from it. If you, if there's a section you'd like to read. How about I read the first paragraph? That would be beautiful. That would be wonderful. I had a professor in college, Mary Maroney, who taught Melville and Emerson and who the once famous Norman O. Brown, her mentor called the finest mind of her generation, a diminutive cherubic woman in her early thirties with a resemblance to a Raphaelesque Puto that was not incidental her parents had immigrated from Urbino, a scholar of staggering erudition who quoted as easily from the Eddas and Hannah Arendt as she did from Moby Dick, a lesbian, which I only mentioned because she did often, a lecturer whose turns of phrase were sharp as a German paring knife could score the brain's gray matter and carve out new grooves along which old thoughts would reroute, as on that February morning, two weeks after Bill Clinton's first inauguration, during a class on life under early American capitalism, Mary, clearly interrupted by her own tantalizing thought, looked up from the floor at which she usually gazed as she spoke, her left hand characteristically buried in the pocket of the loose-fitting slacks that were her mainstay, looked up and remarked almost offhandedly that America had begun as a colony and that a colony it remained. That is, a place still defined by its plunder where enrichment was paramount and civil order always an afterthought. That's the first sentence of the book. (laughs) And and I love the Mary character. She shows up, she plays a very central role in this and that's, that's really beautifully done. Ayad, thank you so much for being I'm, part of the Literary Life. It's such a pleasure and nice to spend some time with you finally since we didn't see each other this summer. So. Well, let's hope the next summer we'll all be together. I look forward to it.